0: Morning, Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Matt. I'm the pastor here, and I'm really glad that you've joined us this morning as we have an opportunity to worship our God together and lift him up and exalt him. I get to preach the sermon today in our series called "Tools for Wisdom." It's a series that we are in the middle of and a series that is drawn out of the book of Proverbs. And I have a lot today, and so we are going to jump right in. I know you're always excited when the preacher says they have a lot. Check. Okay, here we go. Who is Proverbs written by? Most of Proverbs is written by a guy named Solomon. Solomon was king of Israel, and he is writing this book to his sons, who are going to be princes and kings in Israel, and he is writing to them about wisdom, about how to make wise choices in their lives. He's writing to them about what wisdom looks like in a number of different areas, areas like money, work, friendship, how to use your words. And it is not surprising to me that as a father writes to his son about how to live a good and wise life, that there are two chapters, two entire chapters in the book of Proverbs that are dedicated to sex and sexual sin. Chapters 5 and 6. And that's our subject matter today, sexual relationship and sexual sin. woo You were warned last week and you came back. I see. It's such an important topic, but let's start by admitting that it makes us uncomfortable. I've told you before that when my kids were in elementary school, they didn't like us to use the word sex in our house, and so they always had us substitute the word la-di-da-di-da for it, right? Way more comfortable. I met with a couple for premarital counseling last week, and one of the subjects that we covered was sexual relationship and sexual expectation. You guys, when I do premarital counseling, couples can't wait to get to that session. Everyone loves talking about sex with their pastor. <laughs> no? No, it makes everyone, everyone in the conversation uncomfortable, right? As we have those discussions. But while sex and sexual sin is a subject that makes us uncomfortable, it's also an extremely important subject because there may be no other area where the way of God and the way of the world is more clearly diverging than this subject. Every year, the pathway of God's design and the pathway of the world's practice diverges further and further from one another. And in order for us to understand the battle plan that Proverbs gives us, in order to be able to overcome sexual temptation and sexual sin, we first need to look in a more general way at God's big plan for sexuality and marriage and the sins that he calls sin within the scripture. And so to look at God's big plan for marriage and sexuality, we are going to look along with Jesus As he speaks in Matthew chapter 19, a group of Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce. And a part of his answer to that question brings him back to the original creation purpose for marriage and sexuality. And he says there, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two. But one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We notice right off the bat that Jesus said God made people in two sexes, male and female. We live in a world that wants to separate gender from sex and allow people to claim an ever growing list of gender identifiers based on their own desires. This all flows from pride and denial of God's authority. Jesus says, God is the creator, and as such, who is it that has creator authority in order to name our identity? It is the creator who has that authority. But in pride, people deny that authority, claim authority for themselves. He has the authority as creator, and he has made us male And female Science is clear that our maleness and femaleness is built into every cell of our body. Every part of who we are. But we live in a society in which people have denied God's authority and scientific truth and based on feelings have asserted self-authority. And now longings and feelings lead our lives rather than the authority of our maker. The ironic thing about this is that what we see in our society right now is a rash of teenage girls claiming a different gender identity based on social pressure. As research by people like Dr. Littman from Brown University has shown, there is a large and growing contingent in the last few years among teenage girls claiming a different sexual identity. And as studies like hers have shown, the trend is based in large part upon social pressure and social media pressure. Her studies and others have directly linked transgender declarations to the social pressures girls face and the increased attention and adulation they will experience among peers for living their truth. Jesus calls his people to understand you don't have the authority to name your own identity. I am your maker and creator and I have all authority in this situation, not your feelings, your longings, or your declarations. We're Christians and so we submit to our Master in all things. Jesus said that God made men and women and in such he asked them to come together, he commanded them to come together in the institution of marriage so that they could become what? One flesh. So that the two would become one flesh. Now one flesh means an intimacy that goes beyond simple sexual union. But it also includes sexual union. Yes, it describes an intimacy that goes beyond that, but it also includes the oneness, the physical oneness that is a part of the marriage relationship. And as we see Jesus teach in Matthew chapter 19, we see him affirm his own creation purposes from the beginning. Creation purposes outlined from the beginning of Scripture to the end, that God has designed sexual relationship to take place within marriage between a man and a woman, Why? Why has God designed sexual relationship for marriages? Let let me give you a few reasons that we see in Scripture. The first is oneness or unity. God designed sexual relationship as an expression of marital intimacy between a man and a woman and as a tool to grow that marital intimacy. It's both an expression of marital intimacy and a tool to help grow that marital intimacy. It's not a surprise as we study biochemical reactions that we see that God has designed us within our very physiology so that we are united to another person within the sexual relationship. Oxytocin is a chemical that has all sorts of different purposes within our body. But as I understand it, one of the purposes that oxytocin plays is that when it is released, it bonds us to other people so that when we study moms who are breastfeeding, there are large releases of oxytocin that provides mother-child bond within that relationship. And oxytocin is released in its largest measures within the sexual relationship between a man and a woman because God has designed us so that body, mind, and soul, we would be glued together within the sexual relationship. And we live within a society that is suffering all of the damage that comes from separating the sexual relationship from that oneness and glued togetherness, if I can make that up, that God designed for us in the sexual relationship. So one reason is it is an expression of the unity, the oneness we have in marriage, as well as a tool to help build it. Second, God made sexual relationship as a part of reflecting the relationship between Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5 says that the purpose of marriage between a man and a woman is to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. Do we believe that every part of the marriage relationship reflects the relationship between Christ and his church except the sexual part of that relationship? No! God has made the sexual relationship as a part of marriage in order to reflect that great glory of His relationship with His people. The the oneness and the unity that we experience in sexual relationship is to remind us of the unity and oneness God wants to have with His people. Regularly in the Scripture, God refers to sexual unfaithfulness as an illustration of His people's unfaithfulness to Him and sexual faithfulness as His people's faithfulness to Him. It is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, and God has made it for such between a man and a woman. Third, it was designed for procreation. God made men and women to marry and have children so that they would what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And as Christians, we have an opportunity to have and raise godly offspring, which adds more worshipers to our God. And there is nothing greater than there being more worshipers of our God Almighty. God also created sexual relationship for spiritual growth or our sanctification within marriage. God's purpose for everything in life is to help us to grow more like Him, more loving, less self-oriented and selfish. The world sees sex as primarily being about getting gaining, self-fulfillment. God says, no, I've created the sexual relationship so that you can grow in selflessness, in love and seeking the best of the other. We see God's plan for sexual relationship as a way to glorify Him by loving our spouses, by putting them first. You want more information about that or read deeper, look at 1 Corinthians 7 for more on that. Finally, God has created sexual relationship for pleasure because God has given this good gift to a husband and a wife to enjoy together. You only have to read through a Song of Solomon to see the anticipated pleasure from sexual relationship. One needs to read 1 Corinthians 7 and as you do, you'll see that a husband is not to deny the wife and a wife to deny the husband. There is some assumption there that there'll be a desire, isn't there? Because God has made the sexual relationship to be pleasurable. Now we may say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the world also agree that the sexual relationship is primarily about pleasure? Yes, but the the world doesn't acknowledge any of those other things. First, second, pleasure for a different reason, in a different way. The world says, yes, sex is about pleasure for me. I'm going to get some. God says I've created it so that you will be able to lovingly give pleasure to others, so that your life will be about others, and so that as a couple, you'll experience the oneness that comes through that pleasure together. Pleasure begins to help us see that God's plan for sexual relationships and the world's way of using sexual relationships are very different. And so as we look at the values of the world when it comes to sexual relationships, we start with self-rule. Uh, th- there is no authority that tells me my identity or how I choose to practice these things. I am the determiner of these things. Right? We deny the authority of the Creator and worship the creature instead, I read someplace. Second, love as a feeling. The world sells love as a feeling that can't be controlled and must be followed. W- within the Scripture, love is an action an action in which we give of ourselves for the sake or best of another. But the world has constantly sold love as a feeling, the feeling of butterflies in the tummy, the feeling of infatuation, and you have to follow it if you're ever going to be fulfilled. Then there's the idea of sexuality being my identity. In the Scripture, God promises fullness of life in relationship with Him. And we see people like Jesus, Paul, John the Baptist, Elijah, and on and on who experience fullness of life in relationship with God and never have any sexual relationship or activity in their life. But but the world says, no, no, your sexual identity and sexual sexual activity are what bring ultimate fulfillment in your life. You need to follow those attractions and feelings. Then there's the idea that It's my bedroom and my business. Whatever I do in my bedroom, that's nobody else's business. I'm the ultimate authority here. Nobody else sees what goes on. For the believer, we recognize God is with us at all times. Whether we are in our home or shopping at Menards, God is with us. And he is the ultimate authority over whatever is going on in our lives during those times. But within the world, nobody controls what I do. I have full authority to do whatever I please in settings where I'm by myself. There is an ever-growing chasm between the ways of the world and the way of God in this area. And God is very clear. Any sexual expression outside of husband and wife marriage relationship is declared by God to be sin. The Bible clearly describes certain sexual sins. And, And I think as we look at them, we can see how they contradict God's design for sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. Let's look at a few of them that are listed in Scripture, starting with adultery, cheating. The National Science Foundation at the University of Chicago has been studying infidelity since the early 1970s. And what they have found is that every decade, there is a greater percentage of people committing adultery than the decade before. As people break the covenants of their marriage vows, this is a growing sin in our world. The sin of incest. In our country, this problem continues to grow. One in four girls is sexually abused by someone close to them while growing up. One in six boys is sexually abused before they turn 18. I want to say to those in the room who have experienced this, I am so sorry for what you have gone through, for the violations that have taken place. I want you to know how much we as the body of Christ love you and how much we want to stand with you in the midst of this and the recovery that goes on. I don't even want to cover the next one because the next sin that the Bible talks about on multiple occasions is bestiality. I would like to skip over this, but I can't because this is actually a growing trend within our society As more and more people see human beings as just another animal within the animal kingdom, this continues to grow as a plague within our society. Alfred Kinsey was one of the world's leading authorities on sexuality as head of the National Institute of Sex Research. If you've heard his name, that's perhaps because he was played in a movie by Liam Neeson. He believed that we were one of many mammals and as such should feel free to have sexual relations with any mammal we wanted. This worldview of pursuing whatever I feel like, whatever might give me pleasure, whatever I do in my home is my business, has led to growing bestiality cases throughout our country. And if you do a little bit of study, what you're going to find is there is a growing bestiality brothel trade that is growing throughout Europe, started in Germany and is blossoming throughout Europe. I can't get off of that fast enough. Fornication. Fornication is a a broad word used multiple times throughout the scriptures for sex outside of the marriage relationship, but it particularly focuses on sexual relationship between two single people. We live in a world in which the idea of waiting for marriage to have sexual relationship is seen as unrealistic and outdated. I mean, if we're going to think about these old-fashioned ideas of having people wait though marriage to have sexual relationship, we might as well go back to driving around in horse-drawn carriages and churning our own butter. Right? Come on. The world encourages hookups for the sake of pleasure-seeking, and it's almost assumed that a couple will live together and have sex together before marriage. The results of this have been catastrophic, and I, I don't use that word hyperbolically. A recent study of the American Journal of Health and Behavior reported that women who had more than one sexual partner over their lifetime are far more likely to suffer from depression than their monogamous counterparts. They're far more likely to suffer from addiction, seven times more likely to commit suicide. In a national study by Rutgers University, 64% of college students think it is a good idea to live together and have sexual relationship before getting married. 64%. Yet the same study found that couples who had sexual relationship before marriage were 30% more likely to get divorced than those who did not. Among couples who had sexual relationship before marriage, the woman is twice as likely to be abused in the relationship. Among couples who lived together before marriage, the woman is three times as likely to experience depression during her lifetime. The National Health and Social Life Council completed the most extensive survey of American sex lives ever conducted and found that sexual sexual active singles have the most problems and get the least pleasure from sexual relationship. Married couples by far report greater satisfaction in their sex lives with those between the ages of 50 and 59 reporting the greatest satisfaction. Nice work, 50-somethings. Oh, man. Nope. Nope, stick to the notes. Stick to the notes, Matt. National Survey of Counseling Directors conducted a study interviewing 6,500 adolescents and found sexually active teenage girls to be three times more likely to be depressed and three times more likely to attempt suicide. It is as if there is a designer who has made sexual relationship for a particular purpose and as people abandon that purpose, there are consequences and repercussions. Fornication. Uh, The next sin that the scripture talks about is lust. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You want to stare at your wife and long for her. Do it all you want. But any woman outside of your wife, Jesus says, that, that, that is wrong. Right? Don't do that. It's not a problem to see an attractive person. It is not a problem to acknowledge another person as attractive. The problem becomes when lust and craving become a part of the scenario. And friends, pornography is an industry of lust and craving. In a 2018 study, over 50%, I want you to catch this, over 50% of recent divorcees said that pornography played a major role in their divorce. Over 50%. In a survey around the same time conducted among evangelical churches, 68% of men who identified as Christians said that they regularly watch or look at pornography. 25% of women said that they did. And if I understand things correctly, those numbers have only escalated during COVID and grown during that time. Lust, this kind of craving, falls well short of God's design for sexual relationship and all of the reasons that he has made it. The final sin that we'll talk about, homosexuality. We're going to take an extra couple of minutes here. Why? (laughs) Because in our society, this more than any other sin is celebrated. We just came off an entire month dedicated to the celebration of something that the Bible refers to as a sin. And if you won't celebrate it, You're understood to be narrow and bigoted. What God calls in His words, sin, is being celebrated as virtue. What are we to do about that as followers of Jesus? When something that the Scripture refers to as sin is being celebrated as virtue and championed within our world, how do we handle that? Let me give you a couple of ideas. Number one, we call sin, sin. In the places in the Bible where homosexual activity is condemned, it's not confusing, but very plain. Read Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Corinthians 6, another passage, and what we see is clear teaching that homosexual activity is contrary to God's design and is sin. The word used in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 is a word that means simply for a man to lay with another man in a sexual way. It was used widely in Greek and Roman writings of the time to represent general homosexual practice. It's not vague or confusing. It's just not very popular. Romans 1 couldn't be clearer when it says, Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. They determined that the creature was the one who had authority to declare. The creature had one who had the authority to say what was going to be acted upon rather than the Creator. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. God made men and women for natural relations with each other within the marriage relationship. Relations according to His physical, spiritual, and emotional design. And as the world has veered further and further from the design of God, you have seen churches veer further and further from God's truth in varying degrees. Some have veered to the point of promoting with pride their gay clergy. Others have veered to the point of advertising themselves as open and affirming. Still, others, even within the evangelical community, have compromised, not by being open and affirming, but by remaining silent from their pulpits because they know this is controversial and they don't want to lose bodies or box. We must never compromise. He is the authority, and what He calls it is what it is. And as believers, even as our world celebrates sin, we are to call it sin because we stand with God and with Jesus in all things. The second thing that I wanted to say about this, recognize the sin is in the act, right? Recognize. The sin is in the act. No, I'm not saying the desire is healthy, but the sin is in the act. We, I want us to recognize that it is homosexual practice that God condemns in His Word. We have believers in here today who are battling same-sex attraction. Many of our brothers and sisters who are with us desperately wish that was not their reality. Same-sex attraction is not listed as sin in the Scripture. James 1 makes it very clear to us that desire and sin are different things. Temptation and sin are different things. And what is condemned in the New Testament and all of Scripture is homosexual practice. It's our job to support those in our church who recognize the sin of homosexual practice and homosexual activity, but are battling same-sex attraction. It's our job to support them, care for them, love them, and encourage them in that battle. I know a pastor of a Bible-believing church who struggles with same-sex attraction. He understands it to be the gift of celibacy, and he lives out that celibate life as he ministers in the name of Christ day in and day out. But he'd give anything to not wrestle with this. Anything. Some of you were here for the presentation made by Steiger Ministries a few months ago in which a a man who same-sex attracted spoke about his relationship with Christ and the call that Christ has put on his life. I I didn't agree with everything that that guy said, but one thing I loved was when he said that Christ's call among his followers is to give up everything to follow him. He said, of course I'm going to give up my attractions and desires to follow him because he's called us to give up everything. Not, Not some things, not the easy things. The call throughout the Gospels is for any person that wants to follow Christ to give up everything in order to follow Him. He says, of course I'm going to give up my attractions. Of course I will give up my sexuality over the course of my life in order to follow Him. He's called me to give up everything in order to be His follower. We need to be a people who love and support and care for our fellow believers who are fighting this battle just as they love and support and care for us in our own unique battles that we have. The final thing I want to say about this is that we need to object to homosexual practice out of love for God and love for people. We need to object to homosexual practice out of love for God and love for people. Disapproving of homosexual practice isn't uniquely Christian. I had two roommates in college who disapproved of homosexual practice. Neither of them were Christians. Neither of them had any interest in Christ they just found it displeasing. And and we live in a world where everybody loves to spout off about whatever they find displeasing. That is not uniquely Christian. It's, It's not uniquely Christian to disapprove of homosexual practice. What is uniquely Christian is to object to homosexual practice because you love God and love people. To be a Christian is to love God. He's the priority of our life. All our heart, soul, mind, and strength is dedicated to loving Him. He's the priority of our life and we follow Him in everything. We see everything the way that He does. As Christians, when we object to homosexual practice, it's because God says it's wrong and it goes against His reasons for sexual relationship in marriage that we just looked at. And because we love God so deeply, we wouldn't possibly turn our back on Him in any area of life. Jesus died on the cross for sins like this. When people call those sins righteousness, they slap our Savior in the face. And as those who love Jesus more than anything, we won't stand for that. We object out of a love for God. This is a situation that has put a handful of people that I know in a position where they have to live out the very difficult teachings of Jesus we covered a few weeks ago, where he said, anyone who loves a family member more than me is not worthy of being my disciple. And I'm not sure I've seen this play out more than with this particular issue, where people have had to choose the authority and love of Jesus over the decisions that family members have made. We love God above all, and so we are opposed to homosexual practice. We also want to oppose homosexual practice because God has called us to love people. And loving people isn't telling them what they want to hear or what is popular in society. Loving people involves telling them the truth. A person may believe that they are getting to Iowa by going north on 35. All of society may affirm that you get to Iowa by going north on 35. I may be seen as narrow in my thinking because I insist that you need to go south on 35 if you're going to get to Iowa on 35. But a person who genuinely loves, loves a person enough to not let them drive to Duluth when they're trying to go to Iowa. In that same way, we're not a people who love by telling people what they want to hear affirming them as they go the wrong way, or just saying what is popular in society. We're a people who speak the truth, gently, compassionately, but the truth. We want to be a people who speak truth because that's what love is. As followers of Jesus, we want to love by speaking truth. We want to love by being compassionate towards people. We believe that every person, Every person is made in the image of God and as such should be afforded kindness, respect, and dignity. Hateful and harassing behavior or attitudes directed toward any individual are to be rejected by us and repudiated because they're not from God. We're to be a people of love and truth. There's a whole lot more to say here. And when we come back to a sermon series on Romans 1 in six months, maybe we'll say more as we deal with this. But right now, I need to zoom back out from this particular sexual sin to sexual sin in general because we are going to look at the words of Proverbs. Oh, yeah, remember Proverbs? Yeah, we should get there at some point today. You guys are like, wait, there's more? What are you talking about? We need to look at the words of Proverbs where the king, Solomon, speaks to his son about how we can have victory over sexual sin in our life, whatever that sexual sin looks like. And there's four ways in these two chapters that he talks about this. First, recognize the damage that comes from sexual sin. Proverbs 5, 3-5, through 5, listen to this, "'For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow to the path, uh, the path to Sheol. Giving in to sexual temptation causes damage. And that is one of the primary themes throughout Proverbs 5 and 6. George Leonard was for years a leading voice in the sexual revolution. And late in his life, he realized that after years of calling, calling for sexual expression outside of marriage, the damage that it, that it does, and late in his life, he wrote... I have finally come to see that every game has rules, and sex has rules. Unless you play by the rules, you'll find sex can create a depth of loneliness that nothing else can. Damage. The New York Times estimates that there are currently 110 million sexually transmitted infections in the U.S. Damage. I've seen marriages torn apart by pornography. Damage. I know a family right now where the kids are getting torn torn apart from the inside by a father's adultery. Damage. I've seen the pain caused by sexual abuse among among the young and the lifelong recovery that is a part of that process. I've seen the damage done to my own life by the lust of the eyes. The author of Proverbs is pleading with his kids and our Heavenly Father is pleading with us See the damage that comes from this. Because when we see it clearly, it is motivation in order to stay away from sexual sin. Second, to go along with this, flee temptation. Listen to what he says in the next verses. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Right? Do you notice he doesn't just say keep away from her. He says keep away far from her. Don't even go near sexual temptation. We we live in a world filled with the temptation to lust. And some environments have a greater temptation in this area than others. Stay away. Stay away from those areas where you know lust is lurking. Men who are tempted to lust after the perfect physical form in pornography or in other settings Stay away. Women who may be tempted to lust after the perfect romantic ideal in romance novels or Hallmark movies, stay away. What? (laughs) Whether we lust for a physical form or a romantic ideal, it's still lust. It's still ingratitude with what God has currently given to us. And we're to stay as far away as we possibly can. Flee temptation. Third, celebrate sex as God intended. Listen to these words. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? There's a terrible message that is often communicated to young people growing up in the church, and that is simply, sex is wrong. Right? We often communicate to young people the anti-Nike slogan, right? Just don't do it. And that's all we communicate. And so young people growing up in the church, all they hear is, sex is wrong, sex is wrong, don't do it. When in fact, God created sex. Sex isn't of the devil, God has created sex to be enjoyed, and according to 1 Corinthians 7, enjoyed regularly and often within the marriage relationship because he delights in that from the couples that he has brought together so that the two will become one. He has designed us to enjoy sexual relationship. And part of what we see in chapter 5 verses 18 through 20 is enjoying in that, indulging, if you will, in the sexual relationship that he has given to us within marriage is part of how we combat the temptations that are around us. Finally, in his closing words of chapter 6, as he has been speaking about sexual temptation, he says, My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you wake, they will walk with you, and talk with you, excuse me. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. The commandments of God are meant to lead us into deeper and deeper intimacy with God so that we will not have craving to fill that intimacy with other things. The commandments of God are meant to renew our minds so that we will be a transformed people seeking the things of God rather than the things of the world. When people have come to me over the years and said, I'm really struggling with lust or pornography, one of the things that I've always said is, hey, if we're going to fight this, you've got to be committed to fasting regularly. Fasting where you will pray, where you will seek God in the Scripture because this is a spiritual battle. And it isn't enough for us to simply say, we're not going to sin in this area anymore. We have to be a people who say, no, we are going to fill our lives with the intimacy that we have with God and with the commands he has in his word, renewing our mind because God teaches us again and again that that keeps us from sin in our lives. Proverbs teaches us that sin is beatable. We can have victory over sin in our lives, sexual sin in our lives. And it gives us these particular ways, pathways, in order to have that victory. One more thing I want to deal with uh, before I'm done today. Great, Proverbs tells me how I can have victory over sexual sin in my life. But what if I failed? Uh, What what if I've failed big time? Whatever that is. What, What if I have failed repeatedly, despite my desires not to fail, is sexual sin forgivable? The answer to that is yes. Through the work of Jesus Christ through His gospel, sexual sin is absolutely forgivable. When Paul writes 1 Corinthians 6, he writes to a Corinthian community that has experienced and been a part of every kind of sexual sin. Uh, there are people there who have committed adultery, people who've been abused and people who've been abusers. There are people who've practiced homosexuality and on and on and on. There's every kind of sexual sin. And he says to them, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulter I'm sorry, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. <gasps> will inherit the kingdom of God. Continuing in sexual sin as the desire and practice of our life without a battle is a sign that our hearts haven't been changed. Right? That's what he's saying here. If we continue in sexual sin without a battle going on within us over it, I'm, I'm not saying we win that battle every time, but without a battle, it is a sign that our hearts have not been changed by Jesus Christ. Because when our hearts are changed and He takes out our whole old heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, then our desires change and we long for the things of God. Again, do we do it perfectly? Do we never give in to temptation? That's not what I'm saying. But now there's a battle. It, it changes things. And if you have had that heart transplant that comes with placing your faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to understand that every sin that you have committed in the, sin, in the area of sexual sin, or in any other, has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, And such were some of you. But you were washed. Your sins have been washed. You, you were sanctified. You're winning this battle more and more. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what has happened? Cleansing, washing, justification, declared right. Why? Because you've become awesome, right? Because of the astounding work of Jesus Christ on the cross on your behalf. That is why. That is why you have been cleansed. You have been justified. You are being Sanctified. Forgiveness has been purchased by Jesus. I don't know if there is an area where people struggle more with shame over past sins than the area of sexual sin. And if that is true in your life, where you struggle with intense amounts of shame over sexual sin, I want to remind you that if you confess your sin, He's faithful and just, forgive your sin, and He will cleanse you of what percentage of your unrighteousness? Yeah, that, that sounds right to me because of the work of Jesus Christ. We're a family that wants to battle with each other, like on behalf of each other, in this area of sexual sin. For those who battle with lust, we we, want to pray with you. We want to confess our own lust right alongside you and battle with you for righteousness. For those who battle with same-sex attraction, we want to pray with you and walk alongside you and support you in that battle. For those who battle scars from past sexual abuse, we want to love you and care for you and help you any way that we can. We want to be the open, forgiving, loving body of Christ who is seeking to become like Jesus together. Would you guys pray for this with me? Father, we thank you so much for the truth that you've given to us. And we recognize that when we compare your way with the world's way, there is a growing disparity. And that ultimately, as we embrace more and more of your truth, it gets harder and harder to live in a way that is compatible with what the world preaches. God, we ask us again and again to give us the strength and courage to choose you and to choose your way. Father, we thank you that John's gospel teaches us that your word is truth. Not just true, it is truth. It is the very standard by which truth is measured. And we thank you for that clear picture that we have in our life of what is true and what is right. God, we ask that you might continue to work into us as the body of Christ. Love, compassion, care, and encouragement. God, make us a family seeking the best for each other in these areas and every area. In Jesus' name, amen.